trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, this program exists not to tell you what to think, but to encourage you to think more clearly and independently about the world around us. To that end, I'm happy to welcome Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. As my guest, we get together once a week, kind of talk about what's happening. Eric, how are you today? Oh, good. Great to be here. I guess we jumped right over new and Z to Omicron, didn't we? Yeah, and I, I, I don't know if I have been saying it just wrong. I, I don't even know the pronunciation because the variants are switching so quickly. But, <laughs> wow, the memo went out and the, the drumbeat of fear is reaching a crescendo. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I think it's perhaps because uh, a lot of the Biden regime's latest fatwas have been beaten back. They've been beaten back in the courts, and they've been beaten back in the corporate boardroom. You may have caught my story about how the uh, the big three car companies have backed off a little bit from their jab mandates um, because the unions stood up to them. And while they're still going to mandate the jab for their salaried employees, all of the UAW union line workers who actually build the cars at all three major car companies are now, uh, at least for the moment, going to not have to roll up their sleeves in order to keep their jobs. So I think the fear organ had to be dialed up again uh, in order to scare everybody to death, in order to shut them up and get them to roll up their sleeves. Yeah, it really feels as though the narrative was starting to come apart, or at least people's faith in the narrative was beginning mm-hmm. to wane. And, and I've I've heard, and I think it's reasonable to think, maybe this is why the heat is being dialed up again and the fear is being pumped out there. Hey, everybody, don't forget, you need us. That's right. Yeah, they've really backed themselves into a corner with this. Uh, they have to keep the fear going, otherwise the whole thing collapses. And once it collapses, people might start asking inconvenient questions. Um, you know, like, hey, wait a minute, you destroyed my business. Isn't there something in the Constitution about uh, compensation for material losses when the government says you have to close your business, for example, uh, for some supposed public health crisis that didn't in fact exist? Liability for this could potentially be catastrophic. So obviously we've got to keep everybody cringing and terrified in their houses and worried that they're going to die from now the Omicron and God knows what the next variant's going to be. Well, and, you know, things have been looking pretty normal, at least in my neck of the woods. Um, You just don't see a lot of the hysteria. Now, I know that varies from place to place across America. But if you look around the world, you and I were talking uh, prior to going on the air here, uh, places like Australia and Austria and now Germany, the crackdown is real and it's it's getting very serious. Yeah, the crackdown is real. But I think the hysteria, uh, the needle hasn't moved much. Um, at least in my area and from what I gather from my readers all over the country, uh, the number of people who are wearing the face diapers hasn't really increased much. It's about the same. you still got this cohort of people uh, who are pathologically terrified. They never took off their diapers, so they're still wearing their diapers. But we're not seeing uh, more people wearing them here. And I think in places like Germany and in Australia, I don't think the people are any more scared. I think they're simply more brutalized. And I think part of the reason for that is that they haven't got Uh, the ephemeral lingering fumes of freedom tradition that we still have in this country that has protected us from some of the worst of this. And, of course, we're also still armed, and these people uh, in places like Australia and Germany are not, and I think that's very uh, very well worth considering. 
um, that uh, the importance of the of the Second Amendment to our freedoms in this country. No, I I would definitely agree. It's it's kind of a sobering cautionary tale to look at what's happening, and and I wish more people could look at that and see for, see it for what it is because it hasn't slowed the virus one bit. That's right. Yeah. Again, if you have any any degree of uh, common sense and reasonableness, and you look at the facts of this, uh, it's obvious that the whole narrative is, is absurd. That everything from the various kabuki rites that we were supposed to perform, the standing six feet apart, the wearing of the masks, all of that has done absolutely nothing in terms of thwarting the number of cases. And if anything, we're finding that the number of cases and the number of people who are getting sick correlates strongly with the number of people who've been jabbed. Where are the, uh, the, the, the greatest numbers of cases now being recorded? Well, it turns out they're happening in places like Israel, the United Kingdom, and these European countries where practically everybody already is jabbed. So what does that tell a reasonable, fair-minded person? The jabs don't work. And, uh, you know, we got to let this thing burn through. And I, if I could get one piece of information out to the general public and get it through people's minds, it would be that if you compare this past year with prior years, Roughly about 1% of the global population dies in a given year. And that statistic hasn't changed appreciably. You have to go back, I think it's two or three um, um, uh, zeros in the point zero zero to find a meaningful difference. So all of this is literally a mass hysteria. There is nothing to worry about for most people, at least nothing more to worry about than has been the case in prior years. But, you know, of course, the media is doing its absolute best to convince everybody of the opposite. Well, I'm I'm curious to see where it goes from here because um, obviously if if the crisis isn't going in your favor, it's in your interest to ramp it up somehow. Um, any other things you're seeing on the front of of government trying to keep people off balance outside of COVID? Uh, well, yeah. Typically, the the main one, the big one, is uh, via economics um, by making everybody. Uh, increasingly uh, desperate financially, everything from gas prices to the price of food in the stores. I wrote a piece the other day um, about the tone deafness of these people in the Biden regime. Uh, the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, advised people who were concerned about paying $3.40 uh, a gallon for gas that uh, the solution is to go out and spend $50,000 on a new electric car. Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, yeah. that's pretty sassy there. <laughs> well, I think these people are, they're so, they're in their own little fishbowl. A guy like Buttigieg, you know, he's a, a cabinet level official in the government. I don't know offhand exactly what his salary is, but it's well in the six figures, right? So this guy's making a lot of money. And for people who make six figures and more, spending forty, fifty thousand $50,000 on a car is like you and I going down to the Dollar General and buying a Snickers bar. It's just not that big a deal. And they've utterly lost touch with the fact that I don't know offhand exactly what the statistic is, but I'll bet you it's at least half the population of this country um, doesn't have an annual income in excess of $50,000. So these arrogant people are telling people that they have to spend the equivalent of their entire year's family income on an electric car, which is completely it's 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 beyond demented and it's also beyond arrogant. I, I titled my article about that. Let them eat volts and the references <laughs> to the story of you know Marie Antoinette when the peasants in France were starving uh, and and there was no bread to be had. Uh, she supposedly insolently said, "Let them eat cake." <laughs> right. You know, and, and it's 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 those kind of flippant, disconnected remarks from from reality that make me start to understand the old uh, phrase: "Heads will roll." 
because it, sure. it, you know eventually the people are going to be fed up enough. Um, I, it's not that, that I don't think these leaders don't t- deserve it at some level, but I, I actually I fear for their safety when the day comes that enough people say, okay, we've had it. Well, sure. And politically, the interesting thing, or one of the interesting things to me, is that historically the Democrat Party has been the populist party, right? You know, they were the, the pro-union, pro-working man, pro-average guy party. At least that was the talking point. They have become a caricature of the elitist party that they've, they've historically accused the Republicans of being. And I'm not carrying water for the GOP. You know, as you and I have repeatedly criticized the GOP uh, for a variety of very legitimate reasons. But the Democrat Party is now the party of elites, the party of connected, rent-seeking, corporate elites, of government elites, people who have nothing but contempt for, as another Democrat put it, Hillary Clinton, the deplorables out in flyover country, right? Right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting time, and I have no faith whatsoever in the political class. And yet, uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm feeling kind of optimistic, if only for the sense that a lot of people have been jolted by the various lockdowns and all the, the fear porn and so forth. And I think that their faith in these institutions that want to rule them is starting to uh, to crumble. Well, it should be. You know, one of the side effects of the lockdowns uh, was the uh, economic disfranchisement of many people. And, I, you know, I, this is personal for me because I'm friends with a lot of people who are small business owners. I think you are also. And I personally know a number of small business owners who have been ruined by this. And wasn't there something in the Constitution or in case law about there shall be no taking of private property without just compensation? Remember exactly. that one? Exactly. Right. So it's one thing to lock down a restaurant or a gym or a store, tell these people they can't transact business any longer, but you owe them money if you do that. And there has been no money forthcoming. And rightly, these people are pretty doggone resentful. Uh, you know, I've got one friend who poured years of, of, of sweat, physical and otherwise, into building a little cafe in my county. And it was a very successful cafe. Everybody loved it. Great uh, wood-fired oven with pizzas and all of that stuff. And his business was completely destroyed by this. Wow. You know, and he's got a wife and he's got a baby. And, you know, how is he supposed to feed his family now? Well, it's, it's a dangerous... It's, it's pl- really outrageous. And to, to put people in a position where... They really have nothing left to lose. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that is foolishness writ large. We got to take a yep. quick break. Eric Peters from EricPetersAutos.com is my guest. We have a lot more to talk about. Stay with us. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And Eric, uh, you are kind of, you're my go-to guy on a number of automotive topics. And you've had a couple of just remarkable articles here in the last few days. Um, I want to start with one, Remember the Service Station. And I can't tell you the, the memories that, that came back when, when, uh, when I started looking at, at the, the service station of old compared to the gas station of today. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So walk, yep, walk yep. us through I the article. To make, well, it's a, it's a distinction between a gas station, which, of course, everybody's familiar with. We all go to the gas station to fill up our cars, and then we fill up our bellies with a variety of junk food and sodas that are there. 
Um, but those of us of a certain vintage can recall when there were service stations where not only did they fill up your car, but they checked your oil, they checked your tire pressure, and if you needed something to get your car back on the road again mechanically uh, in, in the form of uh, service, it was available right there. Oh, yeah. And and I, I was telling you off the air, you know, I, that's one of my favorite parts of the 1985 movie, you know, Back to the Future. Marty McFly mm-hmm. travels back to 1955. One of the first signs that he's not in his own time is a car pulls into a gas station, and here comes this little army of attendants, yes. you know, checking the, the oil and washing the windshield and the whole nine yards. Yeah, now, to be fair, you know, modern cars have their virtues, too. Modern cars don't need as much service, uh, by and large. Uh, they just need gas and occasionally oil, uh, and you can just drive them. Usually that's the case for the first 10, 12 years before they need service. Now, the downside is when they do need service, uh, it's usually something that you're not going to be able to do, and you're going to have to take it to the dealer, and it's going to cost you a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I, I sometimes think nostalgically back to the days when you could get whatever needed to be done right down the road at your local service station and for not much money. You know, granted, you might have had to get your fall and winter or fall and spring tune-up, but it was a heck of a lot cheaper uh, than having to spend uh, several thousand dollars for whatever the scheduled maintenance is at at 90,000 miles or whatever it is with a new car. Can can such a thing ever be a reality again, though, or has has that ship sailed economically? I think it could be if the government got out of the way, Um, because if the government got out of the way and let the free market work again, I think we would have a spectrum of vehicles available. I think we'd have vehicles such as the government mandates with all of this electronic and technological stuff that every new car has. But I also think we'd have very simple and basic cars again for the people who don't want to be mortgaged to an eight-year car payment for $500 a month and would like a basic, simple car that they could service or that they could pay a 17-year-old kid at a service station to service for them. By the way, uh, speaking of this, with regard to electric cars, this kind of ties into it. In China, you can get uh, basic little electric cars for about six, 7000 bucks, But you can't get those here because they don't meet all of the government standards. Interesting. Now, you also had a recent article on all-wheel drive, and since mm-hmm. winter is, uh, is rapidly settling on uh, many parts of, of the land, uh, let's talk a little bit about all-wheel drive extraneous. Yeah, well, you know, they're having to figure out ways to sell cars uh, in ways that they didn't have to sell them before because there's not that much difference any longer one car from the next. They all have air conditioning. They all have power windows. Uh, You know, they're all pretty well equipped as they sit. So one of the things they're trying to sell people on now is this all-wheel drive thing. You may have noticed that practically every vehicle, and most of these vehicles are now crossover SUVs, either has or offers all-wheel drive, and very few vehicles um, are available now that don't. And it's something that you probably don't need unless you live in Minnesota or some other place um, where there is a lot of snow coming down. Uh, If you live in a warm climate, warm area, you're probably going to be just fine with a front-wheel drive car with good tires. But, you know, they're they're trying to to, to scarify everybody, kind of like the Omicron virus, into thinking that if you haven't got all-wheel drive, your car's not safe. Look out. Granny's going to die. Okay, I admit... I've bought into that. And then, you know, it's, maybe it's just because I, I do like the, the surety of, you know, four-wheel traction or at least four-wheel power uh, when I'm on slick roads. Truth be told, though, I've spent most of my life driving rear-wheel or front-wheel drive cars sure. on snowy roads and survived. But, yeah, yes. I, I bought into the hype. 
Well, and the irony is that a lot of the vehicles that do have all-wheel drive, the, the, the effectiveness of the additional traction of the all-wheel drive is negated or largely diminished by the fact that these cars don't have a whole lot of ground clearance, or they're fit with tires that are sporty tires, with compounds not really designed to deal with poor weather driving. Um, it doesn't matter whether you have four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive. If you ride up on top of the snow, you're going to get stuck. Yeah, yeah. I, I Honestly, the most sure-footed um, car that I have driven on snowy, icy roads was a front-wheel drive, natural gas-powered Honda Civic that had yep. Michelin um, studless snow tires. And I mean, yep. that, those things just stuck to the road yep. better than anything I've ever ever driven, including, you know, my four-wheel drive Suburban with big, heavy, all-terrain tires. Yeah, tires matter a lot. You know, if you talk to people who are into trucks and SUVs, people who really go off-road, uh, you'll hear an earful about how important tires are. You can have the most capable four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive system, and if you've got marginal tires or tires that are really meant to, to be on paved roads most of the time, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference when you go off-road or when there's a lot of snow on the road. And I guess uh, one, of the, one of the facts of life you just can't get around is if you want good tires that are appropriate for the job, you've got to be prepared to pay for them. You've got to be prepared to pay for them, and in more ways than just one. Uh, life is about compromises, and tires can be all season, all type, all you know, all terrain, or they can be they, they can be a specialty tire. If you buy a high performance tire, for example, it's going to have a different compound and a different tread pattern than an all season tire, and you're going to have more grip and traction with that tire. But it's going to wear faster, and you're going to be buying new tires sooner. And on the other hand of the thing, if you buy uh, knobby tires, mud snow rated tires. You're going to have tremendous grip off-road, but you're going to have a lot of road noise. And, again, they're going to reduce your fuel economy, and they're going to wear out faster than an all-season tire would. So would, would you recommend, you know, is it good to have a separate set of tires strictly for winter driving versus, you know, sportier tires for the nicer weather months? Well, it depends where you live. Sure, if you live in New Hampshire or Minnesota, it's a capital idea to put snow tires on your vehicle, whatever kind of vehicle you've got. Uh, when the weather starts turning cold, and put your all-season tires in the garage uh, and store them over the over the winter, and then have them put back on uh, uh, come uh, come the warm weather. But it's not necessary to do that if you're living in a part of the country where you know look at the calendar realistically and think, okay, as a rule, where I live, I might have I don't know a total of ten days out of the year where snow-type tires might be really helpful. Do you really want to put the tire put the kind of tires on your car? Uh, that are, are really only going to be needed for 10 days out of the 365? I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Okay. What about uh, driving skills on slick roads? Obviously, there's something to be said just for experience. I've got a 16-year-old driver right now yeah. who's learning the ins and outs. Um, are, are there, do, do you have any recommendations for, for where people can gain those skills at the least, uh, you know, the least costly way? Yeah, find a, find a parking lot uh, at a shopping mall or a church someplace like that uh, where there's nothing to hit and go there when it snows. Um, take your young driver there and let them experience what it's like when the car slips and slides and how to respond to that and how to control that. There is no substitute for experience, and the only way that you can get that is by <coughs> experiencing the car slipping. And really the only safe place to do that outside of a test track is a big open parking lot somewhere. Okay. 
So uh, I guess I'm I'm going to have to admit my dad was correct in taking me to the church parking lot and and he spun a few donuts, but he was also doing yeah. it with the understanding of look now we're in a skid. This is how you correct for that. Sure. How else are you going to deal with it when you're uh, out driving on the road and you hit some ice? Uh, and, and the car goes into a skid. If you've never uh, corrected for that, if you've never actually been behind the wheel and experienced how that feels and how the car will react when you counter steer or when you apply throttle or brake, you're going to be helpless when that happens. And all the electronic controls in the world are no replacement for skill and experience. I think the thing that threw me in my dad's case was the big smile on his face as he was <clears throat> teaching me. <laughs> well, that too. It's a good bonding moment. <laughs> Eric, great to visit with you as always. I'll send people to your website with a link in the show notes. Looking forward to talking with you again next week. Ditto, Brian. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, just in case you're wondering, I I agonize sometimes over uh, what stories will I share? What commentaries do I want to share? And, and it's not because I'm just a naturally indecisive person, okay? I don't want around in a permanent state of indecision. But I'm always trying to strike a balance between, okay, how do we, how do we become aware, and I mean really aware, and face squarely truths, even unpleasant truths, and see the world around us as it really is, without becoming more fearful. And maybe you can appreciate this. I'm, I'm guessing the fact that, that, that you're listening to this program, you're probably a person who's acquainted with the idea of, yeah, <clears throat> there's a little bit of a price that has to be paid here if you want to understand the world around us. And sometimes that means we have to confront, you know, ugly truths or things that we wish weren't so. But at some point, there has to be this uh, this clear delineation between, okay, this is what I can change versus this is something over which I have no control. And I try to strike that balance. I don't want to sit there and have you obsess over things. Hey, did you see this commentary? It looks like Hillary could actually be our next president. Here's how. By the way, I did read an article on this yesterday that, um, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Wayne Allen Root who has had some pretty solid predictions over the last six years. And he makes the case, uh, look, this is how Hillary could be, you know, put in as president. And uh, I, I have to admit, it's pretty plausible. So why am I not reporting that? Why am I not sharing his commentary? It's not that it's not relevant for some people who want it. I mean, look it up, Wayne Allen Root, how Hillary will be our next president. But the reason I'm not focusing this program so much on the personalities and, you know, the the political intrigue and back and forth is because that's something you and I largely have no control over. Stuff we do have control over, well, that's what I would prefer to talk about, which, again, some people would say, well, then you're just burying your head in the sand. And, uh, you know, I'm making a conscious decision, definitely. I'm trying to decide does this bring value to my life or value to my understanding of the world? Or is it just making me afraid or angry? Because frankly, ain't nobody got time for that. So I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not interested in trying to build your fear or build your anger. In fact, I want to talk a little bit about the fear storm that we are currently under. 
Paul Rosenberg had two excellent commentaries that came out this last week that were just remarkable. One of them was a fear storm is upon us. And, he, you know, he's talking about all this hype over the new variant. Oh, the variant, it's, oh, this is so dangerous. I mean, and, and, and the fear porn that is being pushed by so many of the media sources. KSL, I'm looking your direction. You know, it's, it's crazy how hard people are trying to make us be afraid. And something that Paul Rosenberg observed, he says, look, I saw the signs of this fear storm coming earlier in the week. Now it's arrived. So he says, I'd briefly like everyone to understand how fear storms operate. First of all, he says, please notice that fear storms are coordinated. They arrive in terrifying clusters with more or less every elite-driven bullhorn saying the same thing, playing up the same terrifying possibilities. And notice that your emotional reactions entirely discount possibilities. You're feeling nearly the same shock you would if the terrors were certain. Humans have a certain weakness for that. And he says the people behind these fear storms know that. They understand this. So the goal of a fear storm is for you to stop thinking rationally and to act reflexively. Fear does that to us. And the people who are driving fear storms can conjure more fear any time they want because imagined fears are infinite, after all. Take out a pad of paper sometime, he says. See how many terrifying things you can come up with in half an hour. So if you allow yourself to be tossed about by possibilities, you'll be tossed about forever. And the people who produce these things know this. That's their winning strategy. So Paul Rosenberg says, look, instead of listening to the news and reacting to social media, outfits that monetize your fear, he says, use your eyes and ears to see what's happening in the real physical world. And I love this question that he asks her. Has the world you see and hear changed over the last day? Now, he says, before I send this, I'd like everyone to get this viscerally. A fear storm is a sucker punch. So why is this fear storm over the new variant hitting now? Is it because protests are breaking out in Europe? Is it because more vaxxed people are dying than the unvaxxed? Is it because soccer players are dropping like flies? Well, Paul Rosenberg says, I don't know. But I do know that the world I see hasn't changed since yesterday at all. So can you trust your eyes and ears? Right. The fear porn peddlers are saying, oh, no, no, no. You've got to trust us. Trust these people in authority. But I'm here to tell you that, uh, no, you can trust your eyes and ears. And, you know, it's you got to make that decision. And for some people, I, I accept the, the fact that, you know, Brian, what you're talking about here is just too heavy. It's just too scary. It brings fear to me. And so if that's the case, then I would say, by all means, hit the off button and step away. I, I, I'm not insulted in the least. Because I understand that this message is not for everybody. Not everybody's ready for it. And that doesn't mean they're dumb. It doesn't mean, well, they're just not mature enough. They can't handle it. It's... People have to be ready to, to face hard facts on their own terms. Okay, if you've ever been in a situation where you find yourself needing to improve, okay, maybe you've hit rock bottom. I'll just use the AA analogy. You've, you've reached the point where you realize I can't <clears throat> go on the way that I've been doing things. But it's got to be your choice. This is not something that can be forced on people. This is why I, I'm adamant that 
whatever you hear me talk about, whatever I share in my show notes or, um, or the people that I interview on this program, you're not bound to agree with anything. In fact, it's probably good if you keep a healthy sense of skepticism at all times, even even if you really think, you know, Brian, I think, you, I think you've got a good idea here. I think you, I agree with you mostly. Still, you understand and I understand I'm fallible. There's stuff I could miss. I could totally be wrong. But I feel comfortable enough, you know, with, with what I share that I feel like, you know, this is, this is worth giving you for your consideration. And then what you do with it, that is totally up to you. But I do agree with Paul Rosenberg's take on this, where the the fear storm that we are facing right now is, first of all, it is a manufactured storm. Yes, apparently the Halliburton weather machine has whipped this one up to a frenzy. I don't know if Halliburton has a weather machine, but just just using that to keep my, my conspiracy-minded friends happy. It's been coordinated, and it's something that is encouraging you to ignore what your eyes and ears are telling you. So if you're looking around you and you're going, you know, I'm not seeing people dropping dead because of the new, I don't even know if you, I'm saying it right, the Omicron or Omicron, I don't know how you say it. The new variant, the one that's certainly not Xi, you know, the name of China's president, that variant, why that's the scariest thing that's going on right now. And this is what, we don't know what this could mean. I mean, lockdowns are taking place again, you know, and, and travel restrictions and other things. The people who are in charge want you afraid because as long as you're afraid, you're likely to be compliant. And I know that there's a certain school of thought out there that says, well, if we just all do our part and get the shot and put on our masks and do what we're told, we can return to normal. In fact, I think the words that the president used was we can veer toward normal. We can veer back toward normal. It's very wishy-washy, ambiguous language. But it's, it, it's to obfuscate the fact that these restrictions are just more indications that uh, no matter what they say, you and I are still not in charge of our own lives. You and I are still at the whim of this bureaucrat or that bureaucrat, be it at the national level or the local level, whatever it may be, to make those kinds of decisions for us because they're just so important. But have you noticed? All the king's horses and all the king's men do not stop this virus from doing what viruses do. And, you know, I'm, I'm not faulting people who in good faith are trying to do their part. But it should be pretty clear. So many of the things that we were told were going to be, you know, this is how it's going to be. This is, there's millions of people are going to die. You know, this is, the vaccine is going to prevent, you know, the getting of, of COVID or, or the spreading of COVID. It's all turned out to be untrue. I was going to say lies, but... Maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't know. I'm trying to be generous here, trying to be magnanimous and give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they didn't know. Or maybe they simply stated as fact things which they could not know, which they could not prove. Bottom line is, though, there are plenty of reasons now why people are questioning the narrative. So believe your eyes and ears. If you look around you and the world uh, really hasn't changed that much, there's probably a reason for that. And learning to trust your own eyes and ears as opposed to simply doing what people tell you to do or believing what people tell you to believe? Well, that's the difference between people who are free and people who are not. I think you probably choose to be free or at least aspire to be free. Well, that's why this program exists, to assure you that that's okay. 
And that's actually a good thing. So let's embrace it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Now you can call her at 435-703-4522. You can stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. You can also click the email link that I provide in the show notes at the thebrianhideshow.com. Bottom line is... The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you if you are anywhere in the state of Utah looking for a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, maybe even refinancing your existing mortgage. She has the clout, the experience, and the the necessary resources to get you your loan quickly. And as you know, in a very competitive real estate market like the one we're in right now, time matters. Again, that's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So in the last segment, I was sharing some thoughts from Paul Rosenberg about the fear storm that's been unleashed upon us. And that drumbeat of fear, if you've noticed, over the last week or so has really picked up. And now we're facing the choice of uh, trusting those pounding the drum or believing our own eyes and ears. Well, Paul followed up that, uh, that original commentary with another one that came out yesterday. Seven simple things you can do to cut through the fear. And these are really good, practical suggestions. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sharing them with you. Because this is all simple stuff that we can do, but but I believe this really would work. So, hear me out, hear out Paul Rosenberg, and hear what he has to offer. He says, the well-meaning men and women of the West have been slapped with fear almost daily and for almost two years running. Now, they know things have gone too far, but they don't know how to get back to where they were. Those of us who've been less afraid haven't done a great deal to fix their predicament, and sometimes we've made it worse. So he says, I'm dedicating this post to simple things we can do to cut through the fear that has gripped our family and friends. And he says, let's get right to it. Number one, start entertaining. Now he's talking about invite people over for fear-free evenings. Don't call them that, of course. Just invite them over. Any occasion is fine or just because we've missed you all. And he says, don't ask anyone to wear a mask and don't forbid anyone from wearing a mask and pay zero attention to the mask or absence thereof. If they ask beforehand or at the door, just say, it's up to you. If they worry that some infected person will show up, just say, we trust our friends to be responsible. Leave it at that and remember that anyone asking that question has been worked over by experts at length. So be gentle. And then he says, have a great time. You'll see everyone loosening up over the course of the event, and you'll see them rediscover the pleasure of interpersonal communion. It's a lovely sight. And the more often you can do this, the better. You'll be breaking them out of a cruel dungeon. Now, if a couple of people get into a vax debate or anything similar, he says, break it up right away, smiling at both sides and saying, that's not a subject for discussion in our home. Number two, he says, get people together to fix the elderly neighbors, rotting steps, etc. He says, within a short drive from wherever you live, there are people who could use some help. Organize a few friends to help them. 
If the old couple around the corner have some rotting steps, call a pal or two, go through your garages for scrap wood, screws, and paint, and then drive over on a Saturday morning and fix them. Now, the same goes, obviously, for people who need their driveway plowed when it snows or who could use a well-cooked meal or whatever. As with entertaining, and he says, and this goes for every item on our list, do your best to pretend that 2020 and 2021 never happened. Don't pay any attention to wearing or not wearing a mask, etc. This isn't the time for those discussions. They can come later. Doing things for your neighbors illuminates life, making it meaningful. And such things have often gone undone. So for ourselves as well as for those of the old, infirm, or down on their luck, these things are godsends. Paul Rosenberg says the atomization of formerly close communities has been a problem for some time, but it has escalated over the past two years. Now's a perfect time to turn it back around. Everyone wins in this. Number three, he suggests Christmas caroling as a way to cut through the fear. He says it's almost Christmas, so put together teams for Christmas caroling. You'll only need a couple of practices, and you don't need to be trained musicians. Just people together. Get out and have fun. Besides, he says they're lovely songs, and doing this improves your neighborhood. Now, if you're a musician, formal or otherwise, put together some similar friends and have a concert or sing along at a local church. Make sure you pick one that's fear-free. <laughs> Sad but true. Choose your pieces, gather your friends, have a couple of practices, then plaster the neighborhoods with neighborhood with posters, and have fun. You'll give everyone a chance to get out and hear some nice music. By the way, if I can just add a little... Uh, personal spin on uh, that Christmas caroling. Um, It doesn't take much to pull together a group of people and go to the nursing home, the long-term care facility. I don't know. COVID may have have, uh, broken some people's minds, so they may not even let people in anymore. But it used to be to, to go and visit those who are truly shut in and to sing to them and just spend a little bit of time with them. That was a great way to, uh, to really spread some Christmas cheer. But again, under the current mentality and, and risk aversion, that may not be possible. But if it is, I would suggest, you know, take advantage of it. Okay, number four of the seven simple things you can do to cut through the fear, take your business to non-fear establishments. Paul Rosenberg says, we all know the stores and services in our area that are promoting fear and those who are doing their best to ignore it. Give your business to the latter. But more than that, tell them why you're giving them your business. But do it gently so they don't fear the enforcers. It's scary to disobey people who employ armed men. He says, on the one hand, I'd say, tell the places you won't shop at your reason. But there's a chance they'll rat out their competitors. So you can consider it, but default to not doing it unless you're confident it will help. Number five, he says, break the rules properly. If you decide to walk into a store that has mask-only signs up, there are three guidelines to follow. Number one, never ask for permission. If you're going to do it, just do it. Act like there's no sign at the door. Number two, always smile. Be kind and friendly. Smile at the receptionist or clerk. Thank them for their help. TV and Facebook have told them that you're a maniac and even a murderer. Let them see that you're not. Number three, be prepared to walk. In any negotiation, you want to be able to walk away, so be ready for that in advance. Then if someone gives you the masks are required routine, turn it into a negotiation. Well, I'm tired of those things, and I'm immune, or whatever. I'd like to buy this, but if you insist, I'll just hand it to you and leave. Again, always be polite, 
Say thank you if they accommodate you or as you wish as you walk out. Number six, he suggests start a neighborhood club. Up until 1980 or so, it was fairly common for young people in ethnic ethnic neighborhoods to have their own clubs. Now, these tended to be small affairs in storefronts run by a dozen or so friends. Members would share the expenses and maintenance of the space, and it would be open certain hours and days for informal meetings, dances, and so on. These would be nice to bring back, particularly in partly deserted areas. They would inject a lot of life. Number seven, show appreciation and trust. Now, Paul Rosenberg says this is a far bigger thing than it may at first seem. We are living in a world starving for appreciation. And yes, it's a big part of fear and isolation. Now, he says, I won't try to go through the statistics and stories, but please believe me that a lot of human suffering lies here. Both men and women need to be appreciated and to express appreciation. Without either of those, our personalities become unbalanced. Anyone who tells you that showing appreciation makes you a doormat is hurting you. They don't know what they're talking about. Appreciation calls to appreciation. When we show it to others, we move them to express it, and it very definitely slices through fear. So I've got a link to this in the show notes. Seven simple things you can do to cut through the fear. And I, I'm willing to bet that if, if you sat down and, and put pen to paper, you could probably come up with several of your own. But the bottom line here is you do not have to wait for someone in authority to give you permission to, you know, to cut through the fear or to, to live a more normal life. So if you show appreciation and trust, if you start a neighborhood club, you break the rules properly, take your business to non-fear establishments, go Christmas caroling, do service for others, and just start entertaining, have friends over. These are all simple things well within our grasp, things that we can do that don't require any kind of official permission. Now, unless, of course, you live in New Zealand, where I guess uh, the prime minister there was just announcing that, uh, by the way, the government now gives permission that your friends may use your bathroom when they come over. What? <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Uh, they're so, sorry, I didn't mean to sound like Joe Biden there, but uh, really? Is it, hat in hand, we're just waiting for someone to give us permission. Uh, well, you know, other than that, it was really tough to visit one another because you just had to hold it. <laughs> ah, we live in a crazy world right now. Being able to laugh at it definitely helps. But let's make a concerted effort to cut through the fear. Do it with kindness. Do it with love. Be gentle with those who disagree. And just watch and see how your perspective changes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program is not about convincing you that I am right and everyone else is wrong. This program isn't about telling you what to think. I am here to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible about the world around us 
to understand that truth is not something that's handed to you by an authority figure and that it's okay for you to suss things out on your own and to act on your own to make the world a better place. In fact, you will make the world a better place if you start focusing more upon who you are and what you stand for and less upon, you know, who or what you happen to be against. So I invite you to pull up a chair and find courage and camaraderie with your fellow wrong thinkers as each of us strives to make the difference we were born to make and most importantly to claim our heritage as free individuals. This program is made possible by phenomenal sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, which, by the way, uh, it's just noticing that Dispenser's got some really great swag available. If uh, if you're into that, he's got some very nice-looking swag. you got to go to his website, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They're also located in St. George, Utah, GovernYourIncome.com, and SolarPatriots.com. It's a nice little link in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com where you can access all of these sponsors. Well, I know this. People who learn about history are a lot tougher to fool than people who don't learn about history. Martin Armstrong is an economist, but he does a marvelous comparison of the Federalist versus Anti-Federalist compared to vaccinated versus unvaccinated struggle for control. thought I would share this with you for no other reason. It's going to give you a really nice breakdown of uh, what exactly happened between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist at the time of the adoption and the the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. And it starts with a question from one of his readers. says, Hi, Mr. Armstrong. Thanks for all you do and all your hard work. I have a question I was hoping you would comment on. I've been trying to wrap my head around the hows, not the whys, of the absurd consequences of this pandemic. What it reminds me of is the fight between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists during the ratification process of the Constitution. I was taught the Bill of Rights bridged the gap between the issues back then and obviously satisfied their differences since the ratification went through. Today, it seems as if there is no Bill of Rights and no possible bridge to balance political differences. There are tyrannical federal agencies under the guise of public health and national security and the lawsuits from state AGs, governors, and private organizations to prevent these policies. Now, this is the obvious recourse, but it seems this is not enough. And more importantly, this recourse will not prevent the same thing from happening again in the future. So my question is, what recourse did the anti-federalists have after the Bill of Rights were added to the Constitution to address their worst fears? Elections? Overthrowing the government? Are the Bill of Rights being violated just during this cycle of history? Or is there really no other recourse besides arming ourselves if the police decide not to support the people? So here's the answer from Martin Armstrong. He says the recourse of the Anti-Federalists was a separation that led to the American Civil War. Now, what you're saying is only partly true. They voted on the Constitution without the Bill of Rights. They got it through only on a majority vote of 39 out of 70 attendants. To the surprise of most, the United States was wrongfully created and the Federalists won at first, but it was the opposite party of Jefferson that eventually took down the Federalist Party. It was Alexander Hamilton who would lead the charge to ratify the Constitution. He solicited John Jay and James Madison, and together they would create a series of 85 articles published in New York newspapers between October 27, 1787, and August 16, 1788, which became known as the Federalist Papers. Now, it was Hamilton who chose the title of Federalist 
which was at that moment a controversial act of political aggression since it was the anti-constitutionalists who were actually for federalism insofar as it was a union. By entitling this series, this article series, The Federalist, Hamilton would take the high ground by asserting that the Constitution represented a better version of federalism than the Articles of Confederation. Once federalism took hold, it quickly became self-evident that the people overthrew a king for ruthless bureaucrats. For instance, the Whiskey Rebellion was a tax protest in the United States beginning in 1791 during the presidency of George Washington. Farmers who used their leftover grain and corn in the form of whiskey as a medium of exchange were forced to pay a new tax. Yes, it was a 1791 version of Bitcoin. Many participants were Revolutionary War veterans who argued they were fighting for the very same principles of the American Revolution. No taxation without local representation. Now, of course, the new federal government maintained the taxes were the legal authority of the taxing powers of Congress that they put in the Constitution, not the people. It was in July 1794 that this first confrontation between those who had really not consented to this federalism erupted into violence with more than 500 armed men attacking the fortified home of Tax Inspector General John Neville. President Washington responded personally with men he then called rebels to justify their massacre. Once the state attaches the label criminal, it then justifies violence against them regardless of the issue in question. Washington gathered an army of 13,000 militia provided by the governors of Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and set out to wage war against the American people, most of whom had fought for American independence. Washington rode at the head of an army personally. The rebels were way outnumbered, and it became clear, pay your taxes or you will be dead. The rebels went home before the arrival of the army, and there was no confrontation. Nonetheless, it was at that moment that the evil of the Federalist was exposed once and for all. Now, i got to pause here for a second and say that's a pretty hard truth for people who have been raised to revere George Washington as, you know, the indispensable man. I still think he was indispensable to the founding of this nation. But I'm not going to pretend that, uh, boy, he was absolutely perfect and blameless in everything he did. I'm sorry, but his response to the Whiskey Rebellion was a gross abuse of federal power. Yes, the father of our country. Sorry, but this is, this is how history is. It's not as black and white as, as some would try to make it out to be. So even George Washington could screw up. And the point here is, as Martin Armstrong points out, is that the Union from that moment on was never 100%. He says, as I said, the ratification was 39 out of 70 votes. And if human nature is what it is, there were probably votes that were bought with gold. It was this union by force that led to the American Revolution. The slavery issue was simply that it was the labor force in those days. Now, today they're outlawing fossil fuels, which is already altering the course of the economy. Putting the human question of slavery aside and looking at this from an economic perspective, the North was telling the South they had to lock down their economy and effectively terminate its existence. Now, naturally, with time, many stayed and were paid wages instead of just free room and board, as was the case of serfdom. A serf could not be sold except with the farm, whereas a slave could be sold individually. So, in modern terms, if you outlaw the means to earn a living over whatever issue, they will rise up against the source of that decree. Hence, history will repeat because human nature remains the same. 
And he says, consequently, the only solution will be separation, for the tyranny of the majority will also result in civil war. Now, I realize there's some words there that are probably making a few people's hair stand on end, like, oh, don't talk about that. <laughs> as long as we don't say it, it can't happen. It's like Beetlejuice. Whoops, I shouldn't even say that. But I think he has a point here. And that is to recognize that we're, we're still seeing that, that division and that, that locking down by people in authority who really don't have the authority to do it. They're doing it. But the only reason they're getting away with it is because people are going along with it. And I do believe, you know, as, as painful as this may sound to some, I think separation is, is going to be the ultimate uh, answer. I mean, what's the alternative? People who want to just peaceably go their own way are not going to be allowed to because something, something, union, uh, indissolvable, uh, indivisible, and it's not a suicide pact. And as long as two states remain in the union, then the union persists. But unfortunately, we've reached the point where about roughly half of the union believes that, uh, well, since our people are in charge right now, that means we have the prerogative to order about and to punish those who do not agree with us. This is why politics is such a poisonous thing. Even at its best, it's still which way are the spears going to point? You put that together with a time where people are um, figuratively at one another's throats over various issues. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a real problem. I would much rather see a peaceful separation than see us reach the point where, hey, we're going to just have to slug this thing out. Because I, I don't think people who are advocating for, well, let's, let's fight. <laughs> I don't think they're really taking into account what that is going to cost. But then again, this is pretty much how you can divide people, those who want to force others and those who would allow others to choose their own direction. I know which camp I would fall to. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick word about one of our sponsors, that being lifesavingfood.com. Yep, talking food storage. I've been into this for a long time. And I can't tell you how many times the world has ended since I began, you know, keeping food storage on hand. Okay, it hasn't exactly ended, but I can't tell you how many times little crises have come up. And uh, there have been times where we have used our food storage, where we've uh, provided for our own needs. Sometimes it's, it's to help provide for people around us who've needed something. It's a great thing to have. And you're probably watching as food prices are going up. I just I just was reading an article uh, a friend had sent me the other day. Ruben, tip of the hat to you for sending this to me. 20% inflation expected for food after the first of the year. Sorry, I don't, I don't mean to, to throw a big wet blanket over whatever kind of a great day you were having, but that's pretty noticeable. And that's on top of whatever we have, have already experienced. I mean, I, I take my heart medicine before I go grocery shopping just because the sticker shock can be a bit much. In fact, I keep an AC Delco tractor battery with some jumper cables close by in case i got to restart my heart. It's scary. Get that food storage squared away, though. Get a 25% discount by using the coupon code HIDE at checkout. 
You'll find a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Go to lifesavingfood.com. Take advantage of that 25% discount and have the peace of mind of knowing you have supplies for a rainy day, whatever form that rainy day may take. So Thanksgiving has come and gone. We may be a few days past it, but Thomas Luongo had this fantastic essay about how being thankful is the key to victory over the Davos crowd. Now, the Davos crowd, this would be the Klaus Schwab's of the world, the, the George Soros's, the Bill Gates, and all of the political underlings who, who work within their, their network of influencers. They're the ones who are pushing this thing called the Great Reset. And there's a, there is a great silver lining to all the pushing that's been done in the last two years that has radically restructured and changed the world. And one of those silver linings is that a growing number of people are actually losing faith in the systems and the institutions that seek to rule us. That's actually great news. Thomas Luongo says, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday of the year. It's the one day when we can celebrate putting aside our differences and doing the most basic thing humans can do together, that is, share a meal. He says, it's also the one holiday that does nothing to aggrandize the state in all its rotten guises. And he's got a good point, right? I mean, how many parades, you know, military parades, and oh, thank a veteran for your freedom kind of stuff. Not that there's not a place for that. But you notice most of the national holidays have been co-opted to become, you know, like a, a religious celebration of the state itself. Okay, Thanksgiving is still about thanking God for what we have. Now, Luongo says, obviously, ultimately, this is just a story about two very different people coming together to share the fruits of the harvest and the hunt to begin the long and difficult process of building trust. Trust, by the way, is the basis for civilization itself. Without trust, there is nothing, just the hunger games. So it doesn't matter whether the stories of the first Thanksgiving are true or not. Only those with an obsession with demystifying the world to salve their own inner emptiness care about such historical truths. It's the story that has power, like all great stories. And it's a story that's deeply embedded in the myth of America as the great experiment in governance and rebellion against the colonial powers of Europe. In the end, he says, though, that myth is just that. Of course, it's a myth. America's history is much more nuanced and complex, darker and lighter than the foundations of that myth care to admit. He says, I'm not here to white, brown, or even greenwash America's history any more than an honest British, Italian, Russian, or Chinese person would do their own. He says, I'm here to discuss why it is we should be thankful for even having a world where such myths can even exist. Of course, history is messy. It's violent and sometimes horrific. Yes, some people suck. Wars happen and will happen, genocides committed and are yet to be committed. The big stories we all thrill to on our screens today, big and small, try to help us navigate what becomes, or what happens rather, when people go mad in groups, lose their sense of propriety and humility, and become obsessed with their own fears at the expense of their empathy. This is what a breakdown of trust leads to, a loss of civilization. He says, we live in a time where those in power show their bottomless disdain for humanity by only focusing on the bad parts of it. It's now grown to even uh, to even dissing this one American tradition that is one of the last honest lessons for a world spiraling out of control. Because that's what Thanksgiving is all about. Taking a time out from the harsh reality of existence and being thankful for what you have, not envious of or wistful for what you don't. 
to listen to the race-baiting, soulless apparatchiks screeching about how we should turn Thanksgiving into yet another opportunity to distrust each other before eating a meal devoid of nutrition, i.e. the turkey, desperately imploring us to keep up barriers between family members over COVID, is revealing more of their sickness than anyone else's. Luongo says these are people without hope or faith in anything. They are fallen, power-hungry zombies consumed with self-importance, painting on a face of empathy while extolling medical apartheid and scapegoating the unvaxxed to fuel their hatred. He says these are humanity's enemies, not a virus with a 0.1% mortality rate or those brave enough to face it without the help of Big Brother. And yet we should even be thankful for them. Because without them as a counterexample, we have no way to gauge our own behavior. We have no mirror to look into and see our own tendencies towards ugliness. Because without that ability to see firsthand what it is we do not want to be, we become as lost in our own fugue of self-importance, which justifies any amount of violence, as they are. So he says, I don't hate the Joanne Reeds and Jen Sakis of this world. I celebrate their depravity because without them there can be no opportunity to point out just how insane the world they advocate is. Now he says, last week I speculated that we had reached peak Davos, and I'm surprised to report that I got a lot less pushback from that article than I was expecting. Right on cue, the morning after our annual celebration of common decency and reconnection with our deracinated families, we are bombarded with a new variant of COVID to bludgeon us with. On the thinnest trading day of the year in the U.S., when most of us are nursing epic carb hangovers while doom-scrolling through our Twitter feeds and trolling Amazon for the best deals on a bunch of crap we know in our hearts we don't need, they trot out the fear-porn nuclear barrage. The Dow, down 1,119 points. Oil, down 931 per barrel. Bitcoin, down $5,200, nearly 10%. If you thought you could escape the Davos Great Reset, he says, think again. Everything you have will be theirs. Everything you desire, family, home, stability, hope, is subject to their approval. Pay no attention to the timing, the virology, or the logic. Just abreact in real time to a wholly manufactured farce, which if you watched it as a movie after Thanksgiving dinner, you'd shut off for being too contrived. He says, honestly, at this point, they should hire some better writers because this movie sucks worse than Captain Marvel did. The new variant, or NuVid for short, is evolving so fast that its name had to be quickly changed to Omicron to keep us confused. Is it the new variant or Omicron? People will now spend hours of their lives being corrected about what the name of this thing is so midwits can make themselves feel more informed than their mouth-breathing, unvaxxed brethren they still hate. Now he says, we don't know anything about NuVid other than it has evolved multiple new spike proteins and whatever else the gods of virology deign to tell us about it. Even though we know next to nothing, either of the virulence or transmissibility of NuVid, the first response from the usual suspects is to ramp up talk of further locking down populations all over Europe. Now, the world was beginning to get back to some semblance of normal, but, but now everyone is flapping their wings in panic like my ducks do when they hear a dog, or when the dogs hear a noise in the woods, rather, and start barking. We faced down our worst fears, and we were just beginning to make our way back through the supply chain issues, the backlogs of paperwork, and adjusting to new workflows and schedules. Those that stood in opposition to the vaccine mandates wouldn't be budged from their pro- positions anymore, and protests not televised. Now, we're going to come back to this article in just a few moments, but 
He's speaking pretty plainly here, but Thomas Luongo has a great point. Being thankful is the path to victory over those who want to rule us. Stick around. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder, you can always check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Better still, go to my website, hit the subscribe button, and I will personally email those show notes right to your inbox and save you the trouble of having to go looking for them. Yeah, it's a little labor-saving device I invented called the Internet. I don't know if you've heard of it, but... uh, yeah, it's, it's really making things quite simple. I'm sharing an article right now from Tom Luongo. Being thankful is the path to victory over Davos. And he talks about how we've been hit with this new nuclear barrage of fear over the new variants. And he's just, just talking about how the world was just starting to get back to some semblance of normal. Vaccine distribution centers were shutting down. People were assuming the risk of living. They were finding sources of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine to treat themselves while the medical industrial complex kept trying to get in their way. So he says, our reward for being thankful for mostly feeling like we'd gotten through this terrible ordeal, the hysteria over the virus rather than the virus itself, was to be threatened again with more of the same. And he actually has a great graphic here of the the COVID-19 public manipulation model. So a new variant comes out, surging cases, which lead to lockdowns and further restrictions, and then to vaccination or another booster, and then a slight reopen followed by a new variant, and the cycle continues. Now he says again, I am thankful for this, because in this latest round of fear porn, he says it's the most obvious, most over-the-top, crudest attempt at psychological warfare that Davos has engaged in yet, which makes it easy to look at and laugh. But this doesn't matter to those in charge. If we laugh at them and their seriousness, they become even more incensed. They could see their bonds slipping and they could see people getting back to normal. They could see the massive protests around the world outside their seats of power that I've seen. And they knew it was time to play their next, even more desperate card. He says, the only thing that I'm even remotely afraid of at this point are the people who still need to believe in all this. And yet we should be thankful for the confirmation of our knowing that they've been lying to us about it this entire time. So he says, this will be my last attempt to try to get through to the fearful again. Cases aren't hospitalizations, and hospitalizations aren't a death sentence. With the mountain of evidence out there that none of the numbers we've been given about COVID were ever accurate, why do you think we should believe anything about NUVID? He says, trust should be a four-letter word. It gets back to that building block of civilization itself, trust. Without trust, the pilgrims and Native Americans couldn't have sat down at the table together. Without it, the pilgrims wouldn't have been able to cross the Atlantic in the first place or hired the boat that brought them here. Without trust, that boat would still have been a glint in the eye of the person dreaming of building it since it was a project far grander than his meager allotment of time on this planet would have been able to complete. So the Davos crowd says it's motivated by a desire to save humanity from itself. It has deemed our civilization unworthy of them and their grand ideas. And like angry gods in the process of, they're in the process of wiping it clean from the earth to build back better in their image, not ours. But he says that idea cannot become real unless we lend it 
credence. Unless we, like them, become consumed with the things we've lost and will never have, rather than embrace that which is in front of us. He says, civilization isn't some esoteric thing that can be conjured up by speaking magic words from a mass communications device. Civilization comes from looking another person in the eye, shaking their hand, and making an agreement which both sides honor to the best of their ability. For a critical mass of people in the West, their trust in the institutions that govern them is gone. It's never coming back. And without that trust, there can be no going back to the old system where Davos moved pieces on the board and we reacted to them within the rules of the game because we thought the rules reinforced civilization. But we now know that that, too, is a lie. And he says, for that, I am eternally grateful and thankful to Davos. Because without their chaotic and unfortunately deadly quest to remake humanity so that many people would never have woken up, uh, so many people would never have woken up to the reality of their existence. So Tom Luongo says, that's the reason why I'm more convinced today than before, that we've reached peak Davos, because today I'm thankful for knowing the community of people ready to take that next first step across the divide and form new bonds of trust, which will power the next myths capable of sustaining a better civilization. Definitely an interesting take, wouldn't you say? I'll have a link to it in the show notes. I want to segue from this into, you know, one of the keys to maintaining your sanity in a time of upheaval is to stop obsessing over the stuff you don't have the power to change and to focus on what you do. Ron Paul says that includes reducing our expectations of government. He says inflation was an unwelcome guest at this year's Thanksgiving gatherings. According to the Farm Bureau, a traditional Thanksgiving meal cost 14 percent more in 2021 than the same meal cost in 2020. Many families went without certain Thanksgiving favorites or limited their guests to reduce costs in hopes of saving Christmas from the Grinches at the Federal Reserve. But he says, sadly, these efforts will not guarantee that children's Christmas wish lists will be fulfilled because the government-caused supply government caused supply shortages have even impacted Santa's workshop. Some pundits have suggested that the way to cope with higher prices and reduced availability of goods is for people to lower their expectations. Now, these pundits have unwittingly stumbled into the truth. American people should lower their expectations of government. Ron Paul says, since the progressive era, many Americans have looked to the government for economic security. And the result has been a welfare state that undermines private charities, families, local communities, and the free market. Development of entitlement mentality has contributed to the moral crisis facing the country. Parents who expect the government to provide their children with a quality education are discovering that government schools are more interested in indoctrinating children in cultural Marxism. The expectation that the government ensures everyone has health care has resulted in bankrupt entitlement programs that are major drivers of the nation's fiscal crisis. It also led to Obamacare, which has made it more difficult for many Americans to afford quality health care. He also points out that there may be no better symbol of the folly of looking to government to provide security than the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA. For 20 years, this agency has subjected Americans to incredible violations of their privacy and property rights, as well as their basic human dignity. Yet federally funded tests of the TSA have found TSA screenings are ineffective at stopping would-be terrorists. And it's not just the TSA. The entire unconstitutional surveillance machine created after 9-11 has done nothing to increase our safety, but done much to decrease our liberty. 
Ron Paul says the trillions spent on foreign wars make Americans less safe by increasing resentment of American foreign policy. Our foreign policy that enriches the military-industrial complex and its paid propagandists is another major factor contributing to a massive fiscal crisis. A major expectation that people need to reject is that the Federal Reserve can produce stable prices and full employment. For 50 years, America has had a pure fiat currency. The result has been a steady erosion of the dollar's purchasing power, an increase in economic inequality, a boom-bubble-bust business cycle, and a steady growth of government fueled by the Fed's monetization of debt. Now, despite the Federal Reserve's record of failure, Congress refuses to pass the Audit the Fed legislation that would allow the American people to learn the full truth about American monetary policy. So in contrast to the welfare warfare regulatory state, Ron Paul says a free society will exceed the people's expectations. A free market featuring a currency chosen by the people, not the government, can meet all people's demands for quality goods and services. Private charities could effectively and compassionately take care of those needing help without creating an entitlement mentality. Schools would view parents as customers and so would not use the classroom as a vehicle to undermine the parents' values. He says we can always expect authoritarianism and poverty from big government and peace and prosperity from liberty. Yeah, I, you know, I admit it. I'm, I am a fanboy of, of Ron Paul, if for no other reason than I have been studying what this guy has said. I've, I have uh, read his writings for the better part of, it's, it's been well over 20 years now. And he has been more consistent in his principles, uh, both in and out of political office, than nearly any person I can think of. It makes me sad to see him getting up there in years just because... Um, this guy has been one of the most effective voices and friends of liberty within our lifetimes. And I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know that anybody can ever really take his place. There are lots of great voices out there advocating for liberty. Very few have uh, have matched the, you know, the they've walked the walk as well as talked the talk quite the way that Ron Paul has. But God bless him for his work and and for what he's done and and he's right. If we reduce our expectations of government, number one, you're not going to be as disappointed when politicians and bureaucrats fail, which uh, seems to happen on a regular basis. But secondly, you may actually find a little bit of freedom and prosperity in the process because you're not looking to somebody else to solve problems which could be solved at a lower level. We've just been trained for so many generations not to trust ourselves. Somehow, we've got to get over that and learn that uh, we are good enough to provide the solutions at the lowest possible level. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Final segment of today's show. So in reducing uh, our dependence on government, I found a very interesting article. This is from the Future of Freedom Foundation. It's by Lawrence M. Vance. If you haven't subscribed to their uh, their daily emails, FFF.org 
is where you'll want to go. This is one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers just because you have great people like Jacob Hornberger and Richard M. Ebling and also Lawrence M. Vance who are very scholarly in their approach, but not to, not to the point where it's tedious and you're like, good heavens, I need a thesaurus and a dictionary and, you know, a team of linguistic experts on hand just to figure out what they're saying. So I highly recommend them. And as, as I was looking over this article, it, it's called Contactless Government. And I realized, yeah, you know, I'm starting to see this pop up more and more in retail establishments, the whole contactless shopping, right? And, and this is, uh, it's, you know, it's in interest of, well, we're just trying to keep people healthy. But Lawrence Vance says, hey, that's an idea that could actually translate well into our interactions with government. So here's what he means by contactless government. He says, it seems that at almost every business website you go to, you will see a link to information on that business's response to the coronavirus, the pandemic, or COVID-19. One of the original responses of businesses to the COVID-19 pandemic that's not only still with us, but apparently here to stay is so-called contactless service. Now, although this initially appealed mainly to those who were hesitant, concerned or scared about coming into contact with another human being who might infect them with the virus, the contactless service idea soon caught on with the rest of the population. Remember, during the lockdowns, social distancing, fear, and the uncertainties of 2020, pizza companies were among the first to begin contactless service. For example, here are Pizza Hut's contactless option for uh, delivery. We'll put your packaged order on a contactless delivery stand and place it at the front of your door in a designated or in a designated delivery area. A driver will ring the doorbell to alert you that your order arrived safely and back up to a safe distance, allowing you to grab your order. Your receipt will be placed in the front edge of the top box. I mean, that sounds great. All it needs is a note. This is okay. We're going to drop off the pizza. We'll ring the doorbell once. You come to the door and you take it. No funny stuff. No cops. <laughs> it's almost like, you know, the, we're dropping off the ransom here. But of course, as, as Lawrence Vance points out, it's not just pizza. You can order food from any restaurant via DoorDash, Uber Eats, or Grubhub and have it placed on your front porch or just outside your hotel room so you don't have to have contact with anyone. And now it's not just food. You can get contactless estimates for roofing, painting, carpeting, landscaping, and other home improvements. Some stores have even installed self-service pickup lockers that enable customers to collect their same-day orders without having contact with store employees. Now, regardless of whether the severity of the pandemic has been overblown, there's nothing wrong with any business offering contactless services as an option or even as the only means of doing business. In fact, it's a great example of businesses adapting to changing market conditions, government mandates, and the concerns of their customers. Most businesses never required contactless service, and if they did, customers who preferred direct contact with the business's employees were free to go elsewhere. One reason that contactless service caught on so quickly is that even before the pandemic, self-service checkouts at the supermarket and kiosks at fast food restaurants were becoming more and more prevalent. Now contrast the peaceful and voluntary actions of businesses with those of government. Lawrence Vance reminds us during the pandemic in an attempt to forcibly keep people from coming into contact with each other, state and local governments mandated social distancing, lockdowns, curfews, stay-at-home restrictions, capacity limits for stores, restaurants, bars, arenas, and stadiums, the prohibition of concerts, plays, and Broadway shows, the closure of parks, beaches, playgrounds, schools, 
recreation centers, pools, and non-essential businesses like museums, movie theaters, and gyms. The result of all this turned out to be the most intrusive, comprehensive, and tyrannical control of human beings and their movements in recorded history. State and local governments justified many of their actions by claiming they were following the recommendations of the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But regardless of how good or bad the CDC's recommendations were, the Constitution nowhere authorizes the federal government to have such an agency. And the same goes for the Food and Drug Administration, the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which, as you know, is headed by science itself, Dr. Fauci. Sorry. The Constitution is in force no matter what is happening at any given time. It contains no provision for its abeyance. The Constitution cannot be suspended in the name of public health any more than it can be suspended in the name of national security or natural disaster. Now, he says the response of government at all levels to the COVID-19 pandemic has been a frontal assault on individual liberty, freedom of association, property rights, and the free exchange of goods and services. And he reminds us, in a free society, the functions of government, in whatever form it might exist, would be strictly limited to prosecuting those who initiate violence against, commit fraud against, or violate the personal or property rights of others, and exacting restitution from them. As libertarian theorist Doug Casey has explained, since government is institutionalized coercion, a very dangerous thing, it should do nothing but protect people in its ballywick from physical coercion. What does that imply? Well, it implies a police force to protect you from coercion within its boundaries, an army to protect you from coercion from outsiders, and a court system to allow you to adjudicate disputes without resorting to coercion. Doug Casey says, I could live happily enough with a government that did just those things. Unfortunately, the U.S. government is only marginally competent in providing services in those three areas. Instead, it tries to do everything else conceivable. End quote. Now, Lawrence Vance says the same goes for state and local governments, who all, in the name of public health, have criminalized heretofore legal activities, violated civil liberties as bad, if not worse, than in wartime, and destroyed private property rights in their quest to force people to stay away from each other. Instead of forced separation and contactless personal and commercial interactions, what Americans really need is contactless government. So he gives several key areas in which this is so. He says Americans need contactless government when it comes to health care. We're currently forced by the Federal Insurance Contributions Act, or FICA, to contribute 2.9% of our total wages, split equally between employers and employees, to the Medicare program. Medicare is government-funded health care for Americans 65 years of age and older, and for those who are permanently disabled, have end-stage renal disease, or Lou Gehrig's disease. Medicare covers about 63 million Americans. In addition, the federal government maintains and or funds medical research, insurance exchanges, community health centers, clinical trials, family planning, HIV, AIDS prevention incentives, on and on and on and on. On the state level, there are even more regulations, medical licensing laws, Medicaid, children's health insurance program. And his point here is, I mean, he goes through two very solid paragraphs of all the different things where government is involved in our health care. And says, in a free society, there would be no contact with government when it comes to health care. No American would be entitled to health care provided at the expense of another American. 
No American would be forced to pay for the health care or health insurance of any other American or their children, regardless of how poor, old, sick, disabled, or needy that other American was. All charity would be private and voluntary. Health care would not just be a right, but rather a service that would be provided on the free market like any other service. He says we need contactless government when it comes to guns. And he walks through why the ATF is not authorized by the Constitution and, and violates the Second Amendment over and over again. In a free society, there would be no contact with government when it comes to guns. Anyone could manufacture or sell any type of gun, ammunition, or, manuf- or magazine, rather. There'd be no government interference between a willing seller and a willing buyer just because a gun was involved. There would be a free market in guns just like there's a free market in fruits and vegetables. He goes on to call for a uh, no-contact or a contactless government when it comes to education. In a free society, that would be the responsibility of parents. Education would be a service provided on the free market by private entities. In a free society, he says, you know, Americans would would have a contactless government when it came to alcohol, when it came to employment, and when it comes to commerce, and when it comes to retirement. Now, there was a time when this was all the case. But the bottom line is, in a free society, people have the, particip- have the ability, rather, to live their lives in any way they choose, to do with their property as they will, to participate in any economic activity for their profit, engage in commerce with anyone who is willing to reciprocate, accumulate as much wealth as they desire, and spend the fruits of their labors as they see fit. And as long as people's actions are peaceful, their associations are voluntary, and their interactions are consensual, and they don't violate the personal or property rights of others... They shouldn't have to come in contact with the government. Lawrence Vance says the government should just leave them alone. Check out the link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.